Glad to see you all survived Ice Mageddon 2019. It's good to see all your smiling faces. Excited to be here with you. Also excited about our brand new David series uh, that we just started last week. And uh, so we have a lot to cover in today's uh, narrative. And so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to get right down to it. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up, turn it on on your phone, head to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we're going to be together this morning. And we're going to be talking about one of the most famous stories, not just in the Bible, one of the most famous stories uh, ever told. And so, uh, listen, even if you're not a Christian and you're here, uh, maybe you haven't been in a church ever in your life, you know this story. This story has captured the imaginations of people for literally centuries. Uh, In fact, in our culture today, we hear references about this story um, all the time. Uh, in the sports world, uh, whenever a, an underdog pulls kind of an unlikely upset, it gets compared to what? David and Goliath. So it's like last week when Clemson beat Alabama, man, we're going to have a moment of silence here for the Lord's team. <laughs> we'll be back next year. All right. Anyway, you hear that comparison all the time uh, in the political world, right? If a politician kind of comes out of nowhere and they win this big election, the news anchors compare it to David and Goliath. We are all super familiar with this story, no matter what your background is. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily, that we're familiar with it, that we already know it. But there is a particular danger in familiarity, and the danger is this. Even unintentionally, at times, we can begin to tune things out that we are familiar with. So, like, I would just bet some of you already, when I just said we're going to be talking about David and Goliath, some of you in your mind are already like, yeah, 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 I already know David and Goliath, I know how the story ends, and so I'm going to, like, scroll through my Twitter feed uh, during service. Let me just encourage you, don't do that. This is a spectacular story, and I really believe God wants to meet us right where we're at this morning. He wants to use this story in his word, apply it to your heart by the power of his spirit in an incredible day, a way in your life today. So don't, don't tune out, uh, dial in. Now this, this is a long story, about 50-something verses, and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna read a little bit, we'll break it down, I'll narrate some of it because we don't have time to read all of it, uh, we'll talk about it as we move along, and then we're gonna finish up with two uh, practical application points, and then we're gonna come to the tables at the end, and we're gonna celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Okay, First Samuel, hope you're there. We're gonna start in verse two. This is what it says. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So, so here's the picture. I actually looked up this uh, as I was studying this week. You can still see this valley today. If you go to Israel, there's this valley. It's called the Valley of Elah. There are two ridges or two mountains. And so right here, it's saying that Saul and his army, the Israelites, were on this one side of the mountain. And then there was this valley. On the other side, you have the Philistine army. Now, the Philistines, if you know your history, uh, man, they're this large, just vicious army. Uh, They're huge people to begin with. They are battle-tested. They are technologically advanced, as we're going to see in just a minute. And they have come to this valley for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to conquer Israel. And so the stage is set for a long, brutal, bloody battle with absolutely everything on the line. See, back in these days, if you lost a war, you lost everything. 
So it's not like kind of, kind of in our day, we kind of picture wars like, yeah, if you lose and you kind of go in and the politicians meet, they sign a peace treaty and then everything's all good. We kind of get to go back to our lives as things were. That's not how it was in those days. In those days, if you lost uh, a war, all the men are typically executed on the spot. They might keep some of the youngest, stronger men as slaves. All of your women, all of the children would all be taken as slaves, and many of them used for just unspeakable things that we're not even going to talk about. All of your homes, all of your livestock, all of your land, all of it becomes property of your enemy. So literally, everything is on the line. This is life or death, not just for you, but for your children and your children's children. I mean, this is massive. And so as we step into this narrative, I just want you to kind of sit back, put your, yourself in their shoes and just feel the weight of this for a moment. Your heart, if you were standing on one of those ridges, looking across the Valley of Elah up to this huge Philistine army, your heart would have been beating out of your chest. And this is where they are. Verse four. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze arm on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And a shield bearer went out before him, and he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the Bible goes into great detail about Goliath. We already know the Philistines were kind of a large people anyway, but this guy is apparently absolutely massive. The Philistines were also uh, on the cutting edge of warfare technology of their day. If you're a history buff, you know that they were one of the first nations, maybe even the first nation, uh, to use iron, the, the metal iron, for weapons. They literally, they revolutionized uh, warfare in their day. They were advanced militarily. Goliath, if you do the conversions, they, the Bible says he's six cubits in a span. That's how tall he was. Scholars believe that's right around nine feet, give or take a little bit. His body armor, if you do the conversions, weighed about 125 pounds. The head of his spear alone weighed about 15 pounds. So if you've ever picked up a 15-pound weight, just think about how big and strong you would have to be to, to wield that type of weight on a spear 8, 10 feet away from your body and be effective in battle with it. This guy's massive. And we're getting all of this detail about Goliath because the Bible wants us to understand how bad of a dude Goliath was and how much trouble Israel is in. He was terrifying. Like think, think of like the biggest, scariest thing you've ever seen in your life. Think about like the craziest villain or, or whatever. We went uh, over the holidays as a family, went and saw uh, the new Spider-Man uh, movie. And if you're a kid, it's got, some, it's got some pretty scary villains in it. 
And at one point, there was this uh, there's kind of battle scene between one of the villains and, and Spider-Man. And I'm sitting there by my son, Judah, who's six years old. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, maybe this is too much for him. So I look over at Judah, and he's sitting there, and his eyes are like as big as saucers, his mouth's open. He's just like right on the verge of terror, right? So just think about like whatever the scariest thing you've ever seen in your life. Like Goliath was that times 100. He was a beast. And the Bible tells us he comes out twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening for 40 straight days. And he comes out and he just screams at them. He's just defying them. He's taunting them. He's mocking their God. And the Bible says that Saul and his army were dismayed and greatly afraid, which is biblical language, for they wet themselves. They had to go change their tunics every single time that Goliath would come out there. They're just paralyzed in fear at the sight and sound of this beast. He is terrifying, right? Your nightmares are made of this stuff. He is Freddy Krueger on steroids. You don't know who Freddy Krueger is. You didn't grow up in the 80s or 90s. You can go Google him later. He was scary, right? So all this is happening over here in the Valley of Elah. And then right over here in Bethlehem, you have David, and he's back watching sheep. See, he's not even old enough to be in the military yet. Scholars believe he's probably 15, maybe 16 years old at this point in time. So he gets appointed king, and he's back watching sheep, right? So his dad, Jesse, comes to David, and he says, hey, listen, David, I want you to take some food to your older brothers who are out on the battlefield. And so David obeys his dad, and we see that at this point in his life, 15, 16 years old, he's, even though he's been anointed king, he's still kind of like the errand boy, right? He's still, he's still the sheep watcher, and so he kind of goes out to meet his brothers. He probably stops off at, at Chick-fil-A and gets him some Christian chicken and some good waffle fries or something like that, taking him out there to his older bros in the army. Verse 20, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse, his dad, had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So David shows up to this incredible battle scene, and apparently what was happening was the Israeli soldiers would go over to the battle line, and they would scream a war cry to the Philistines. Now, I have no idea what they could have been screaming, like, yo mama is so ugly, she gave birth to Goliath. Or, I mean, like, I have no idea what in the world, they're, they're terrified. So what are they screaming? I, who knows what they're screaming? And then the Philistines would sit, kind of walk back and be like, yeah, well, we still got Goliath. And the Israelis would be like, yeah, good point. And they'd run back to their camp and, you know, like rock in the corner and suck their thumbs or something. So verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. There's only one difference. Who's there now? David's there. And so for the first time, David hears what's going down. And David heard him. Now that is biblical language for it's about to go down, right? <laughs> Everybody else is cowering. They're fearful of this beast of a man. And David sees it and he's outraged. He's already thinking in his mind, like, I'm about to kill that guy. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. This is a picture of just pure terror. These are battle-tested warriors, Saul and this army, and they are petrified. And the men of Israel said, they're talking to David now because he just showed up on the scene. Have you seen this man who has come up? Like They're just in awe of this guy, how big and scary he is. Surely he has come up to defy Israel 
And the king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. This was, uh, he's talking about tax-free. So basically, your family would never pay taxes uh, in your entire life. Verse 26, and, the David's de- and David said to the man who stood with him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So the guy's right there standing next to David. He shows up and they're like, hey man, have you, have you heard what Saul's gonna give the guy who actually slays Goliath? Saul's gonna give him three things. He's gonna make him filthy rich. He's gonna give him his beautiful daughter as a bride so you get to marry into the royal family and your entire family is tax-free for the rest of your life. David goes, whoa, 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 come again? Tell me, I wanna get this straight. Tell me what the guy who kills Goliath is gonna get. You're gonna get wealth. You're gonna get to marry the beautiful daughter of the king, be a part of the royal family, and your entire family line pays no taxes ever. And I think what's happening here is David is beginning to connect the dots. David is beginning to think, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm not just here to, to bring some chicken nuggets and waffle fries to my brothers. Like maybe, just maybe, God has brought me here for a bigger purpose. And I love David's kind of defiant confidence in the Lord. He says, for who, he sees Goliath for the first time. Here's him for the first time. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does Sasquatch think he is to defy the God of this universe? Man, I love David's heart here. This kid has so much confidence in God. And then the next scene, we see our boy Eliab show up. You remember him from last week, Eliab? He's, the, he's David's older brother, bigger brother. Big, strong, good-looking, strapping guy. Everybody thought he was going to be king, right? Because he looked the part. He looked like a warrior, big, strong dude. And God rejected him because his heart was far from him. So verse 28, now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So he hears that David's in camp now for the first time. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left a few sheep in the wilderness. Now, this is, this is pure jealousy and bitterness on Eliab's part. And I think the Lord has just kind of given us a little bit of picture, like a snapshot into Eliab's heart and why God didn't choose him to be the next king. All right, so he comes to his little brother, who, by the way, has traveled all this way to bring him supplies and food. And you would kind of think he would just like embrace his little brother. Like, man, it's good to see you. Thanks for bringing us food and supplies. How's, how's our father doing? Tell, tell our father we're doing okay, but ask him, ask him to pray for us, man. We've got this huge enemy. And man, it's good to see you, David. Thanks for coming out. You'd think that would be his response, but that's not his response. His response to seeing his little bro is, what are you doing here? Like, aren't, aren't you supposed to be watching those few sheep? Like, you're, it's not, not enough that you're a shepherd of many sheep. You're so weak, you're like a shepherd of a few sheep. Like, these are, these are cutting words here. You can almost just hear the condescension in his voice as he's greeting David. He was really, I think he was trying to hurt David. And then Eliab, he really buries the knife into David's back as he continues. He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. He says, David, you've got bad intentions and you've got an evil heart. It's brutal. Like, like, what had David done? All David had done was obey their father, Jesse. Verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? 
what, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? David's like, Eliab, I can't win for losing with you, man. What have I done? All I'm doing is obeying our, our father. Verse 30, and he, David, turned away from him, Eliab, toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Now, this is, this is one of the more insightful verses in this whole story. It says, David turned away from him. And notice, David didn't engage Eliab. He didn't defend himself against Eliab. He didn't say, this is why God didn't choose you, because you have a wicked, dark heart. The Bible says he turned his back on him. And here's one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn in the room if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. Listen, sometimes when God calls you to something, the people who will oppose you the most are the people who are closest to you. It'll be your family. It'll be somebody in your church family. It'll be one of your best friends. And when that happens, the lesson David teaches us here is we do exactly what he did. We turn away and we obey God anyway. Now, you guys have heard the story. I've told the story before of Jim Elliott. Was this uh, back five, six decades ago? Was this incredibly talented young man? He was in seminary, training to be a pastor, and everybody around him was just kind of enthralled with Jim Elliott. He's a young guy. He's a good-looking guy. He was a really charismatic speaker. And Jim Elliott began to sense that God was calling him to take the good news of Jesus to the Aka Indians in the Amazon jungle. Now, everybody that had ever encountered the Aka Indians had been murdered by them. And he just felt this sense, like, that's the purpose of my life. I'm supposed to take the gospel to this unreached people group that's never even heard the name of Jesus. He started talking about it, and everybody in his life, everybody in his circle of influence discouraged him. His family, his friends, his seminary professors. Everybody said, Jim, you're crazy. That's a suicide mission. You're gonna die. Let somebody that doesn't have talent go down there and die. You are really talented, man. Like, you could start preaching. You could plant a church. You could have a mega church. You could have a huge following. You could sign book deals. I mean, you could become wealthy. And Jim said, no, God is calling me to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. And so Jim took his family and he went down and he gave his life reaching that tribe. And because of Jim Elliott's life, most of that tribe follows Jesus to this day. Jim Elliott famously said in the face of all the opposition from his family and his friends, this is what he said as he prepared to go to this, these Indians. And he knew he likely would lose his life. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. See, Jim turned from the critics and he gave up his life and he changed the destiny of an entire people group forever. William Carey, William Carey was a young man uh, in Britain in the 1700s, and he felt called to India. And uh, believe it or not, he was sharing his heart uh, in a pastor's conference. So he's in this large room with nothing but other pastors, and he was sharing his heart for the, the nations and how he felt like God had called him to take the good news of, of Jesus to the Indians who, who had never heard. And as he was sharing his passion and his love to take the good news to the nations, there was an older pastor in the back of the room who stood up, and he said this to young uh, William Carey. He said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you. William Carey went anyway. It took him seven years to see his first convert to Christ. Today, there are nearly 30 million Christians in India. See, William turned from the critics, and he obeyed his God. 
And the sad reality is we see the same scenario play out again and again in the church world today. I've seen it in the church world. Well, parents, parents in the church will discourage the dreams God puts in their children's hearts to go to the nations or to move to the inner city to to reach people for Christ or whatever it is because they don't want to be too far away from their grandkids or inconvenienced by this or it's too dangerous or whatever. I just want to encourage you, if you're a parent in the room this morning, do not get in the way of God. Your children belong to God before they belong to you. So just understand this, believer. Sometimes your biggest opposition to obeying God's will will come from those closest to you. Obey anyway. David teaches us that. The saints that litter the pages of history teach us that. God-sized dreams require God-sized courage. And that type of courage is only found in obeying God. That's where we find it. Otherwise, you will end up just like Saul, just like the Israelites, cowering at the sight of the Goliath in your life. Well, word gets back. Word begins to spread in the camp that there's a, there's a young man who's not afraid of Goliath. And so Saul hears about it. And Saul says, man, bring me this guy. And Saul, you just got to imagine, Saul's feeling pretty hopeful at this point. Got to imagine Saul was picturing in his mind that this is some huge battle-tested warrior who just showed up from some obscure clan in Israel or something. He's like, man, maybe this guy's gonna be the guy to save us. He's excited about it. So he calls for David. David walks into his battle tent or whatever, verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. So little 15, 16-year-old teenage shepherd boy walks in, man, and you know Saul's heart just sank. He was expecting some huge, massive warrior, and little David walks in, and David says, Saul, listen, don't be afraid. I'm gonna take this guy out. You don't have to worry about it. I'm gonna handle it. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So Saul looks at David and says, you're just a kid. Haven't you seen Goliath? This dude is massive. He's been a soldier. He's probably killed thousands of people in his life. He will slaughter you. Get out of here. Stop wasting my time, kid. More opposition for David, right? He shows up. First it's his brother opposing him. Now it's the king of Israel opposing him. I just imagine it'd be really easy for David at this point just to give up just to walk away discouraged. Man, nobody believes in me. Nobody believes our God is big enough to kill this giant. And as I was studying that this week, I just, I kind of wondered to myself, like how many of us, how many of us as followers of Jesus, how many of us give up and we walk away right before God is ready ready to give us a huge victory? Not David. Not David. David looks right in Saul's eye, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant, he's talking about himself, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if it arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
David looks right in Saul's eyes and he says, Saul, listen, you need, to, you need to listen to me. You need to understand something about our God. All those years I was out in the sheep field watching sheep, God showed me his power again and again and again. And every time a lion or a bear would come and steal the sheep, I would leave the 99 to go after the one. And every single time, God helped me kill those bears and those lions to protect my sheep. And Saul, listen, you need to understand this. The same God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from this giant. Saul, you gotta believe. You gotta believe in this, man. And so Saul responds and he says to David, okay, go and the Lord be with you. And see, I think what's starting to happen here is Saul is beginning to see and sense that God is with David. See, this type of confidence, this type of fearlessness that David has is supernatural. So Saul says, all right, kid, let's see what you got. God, God be with you. God bless you, man. I'll be cheering from you up in the safe part of the mountain. So Saul tells us Saul puts his armor on David. And you gotta remember, Saul was a big man. The scriptures tell us he stood a head above everybody else in Israel. So he was kind of like a giant himself. And he puts his, his battle armor on 15, 16-year-old David. So you can just imagine David like trying to walk and he can't even move. He's like a statue. Like, man, I, so I, can't, I can't wear your armor, man. I, I've got to do this the way God has called me and the way God has equipped me to do this. And so he goes down into the valley and he goes down to the river and this river still runs through the same valley today. You can go there and see it yourself. He goes down to this river in the valley of Elah and he picks out five smooth stones and he sets out to meet Goliath with a slingshot and a pocket full of rocks. Just insanity, Insa- pure insanity. And you guys know what happens next. Let's read the last part of the story together. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. Goliath is offended that they've sent David out. So if he was angry before, he's even more angry now. Like, how dare you send a little kid out to fight a warrior like me? Verse 33, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Now he's taunting David. You want to fight me, kid? I'm going to kill you and feed you to the animals. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, this is one of the most epic speeches ever. He said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. And David, listen to this, And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. No no hesitation from David. No like, oh, junk. What have I gotten myself into? Oh, I need to go back to the camp and pray a little bit. No, David, the scripture tells us, breaks into a full-on sprint towards Goliath. Such is his confidence in God. 
Verse 49. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Just in case you were wondering, he did not have a sword. He did this with a rock. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. He told him he would do it and he did it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the man of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Incredible. A teenage boy walking closely with God takes on the giant that the best, biggest, baddest warriors in the world were terrified of. And God gives him the victory to show the world that David's God has the power to save that David's God has the power to do the impossible. And I wanna give you two quick kind of application points that I think we can all apply to our lives and we'll begin to, to wrap it up. The first one is this. The fear of man paralyzes, but intimacy with God produces a ferocious boldness in our lives. Listen to Proverbs 29. It says, the fear of man lays a snare. Fear is like a trap in our lives, but... Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, Saul was paralyzed by fear. He was immobilized by fear. But David walked with God, and he was insanely bold. Now, let me ask you something. Who should have gone out and fought Goliath? Saul. Saul was the king. He was the commander of the Israeli army. And at one time, we know that he was bold in battle. But now he's a coward. So the question is, what happened with Saul? And listen, don't, don't miss this, believer. When Saul left God's presence by disobeying God, he lost the boldness that comes only when we're walking with God. So we have a picture of a man here who's not walking with God, and he is paralyzed by fear. And then we have another picture of another man who's walking intimately with God, and he is ferociously bold. I mean, like, I'm talking out of his mind, courageous, so how did David get there? Like, what was different between David's heart and Saul's heart? I want you to listen to David's heart as he writes in Psalm 63. This will be on the screens uh, behind me. This is what David said. Listen to his heart. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, what was David thinking about when he went to bed at night? He wasn't thinking about the stresses of the next day or what he had to do at work the next day or his favorite sports team. He was meditating on God and his goodness to him and his relationship with God. 
Verse seven, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David walked closely with God. David had a real relationship with God. David was hungry for God's presence in his life. And in his presence, David found this type of ferocious boldness that only comes as we walk closely with him. The type of boldness that allows you to stare right into the eyes of the giant of your life and scream, my God is bigger. My God is bigger. You've already lost and I've already won. He has overcome. His victory is mine. You see, fear paralyzes, but intimacy with God produces ferocious boldness. Here's the second application point. Real courage, you could say supernatural courage, is birthed from deep faith in the promises of God. Now listen, Saul knew the promises of God just like David did. They lived in the same country. They served under the prophet Samuel. They would have heard God's word read. They knew the promises of God. They knew that God had promised them this promised land, that the Philistines would be eradicated. They both knew the promises of God. Saul had even seen God show up again and again and again. He had seen God come through a thousand times with his own eyes, but his faith was not in God. He took his eyes off the power source. He began to focus on himself, and he found his own weakness instead of God's strength, and he became a coward, enslaved by fear. David, on the other hand, he knew the promises of God. He knew that God had promised him that he would be the next king. He knew that he was immortal until that promise was fulfilled because he knew God was true to his word. His his courage was absolutely fueled by the promises of God. And so, believer, listen, you have a choice to make in 2019. I have a choice to make in 2019. You, like Saul, can try to fight your own battles and your own strength. And when you do that, you're going to end up, just like Saul, living in a cage of fear. Because you cannot beat Goliath on your own. You've got an enemy that's way bigger than you. You've got an enemy that's way stronger than you and way smarter than you. Or you can choose, like David, to press into the promises of God, to walk closely with him this year, knowing that the victory is already won and that Goliath is already dead. And start to live the life of courage that God has designed his sons and his daughters to walk in. I want to finish with this one thought. This particular story in 1 Samuel has often been taught like this. And so if you're like me, you grew up in the church, maybe Sunday school, VBS, whatever, um, you've probably heard it taught like this. And so a lot of people teach it like this. Man, you can be David. You can be David. All you have to do is muster up enough like courage within yourself, just trust yourself enough, just follow your heart enough, and you too can slay the giants in your life. You can slay your financial giants. You can slay your relational, your marital giants. You can slay, you know, your addiction giants or whatever. But here's the only problem with that, friend. It's not true. Now, this may be shocking to you, but I'm going to say it anyway. You're not David in this story. I'm not David in this story. You're not the hero of your own life. Do you know who we are in this story? We're the Israelites and Saul cowering in the corner, changing our tunics every day. That's who we are. Jesus is David in this story. 
Jesus is the one who came to rescue us from the Goliath of our sin. He's the one that came to save us from the giant of fear and death and hell. His victory can become our victory. But listen, friend, we are not the hero. Jesus is. And you need him to slay the giants in your life. You cannot do it by yourself. Israel needed a savior, and so do you. And that savior was and is and will always be Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a second. Uh, Band, you guys can come up. Ushers, you can come to the tables. I would just guess, man, there are are some of you here in a room this size with this many people, and and I just know, like, where you're at in your life, whether you're here and you're religious or you're irreligious, I know that what you need to do today is you need to trust Jesus for the first time. Like, that's step one. You can't even get to step two in your spiritual journey until you've got step one out of the way. So there's some of you here, that's, that's just what you need to do today. You just need to bow your head right now. You need to cry out to God right where you are. You say, God, I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to fight my own battles. My Goliaths are too big. I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm tired of living my life scared. I'm tired of being just trapped in fear. And I realize, maybe for the first time, I need a Savior I need somebody to come and rescue me from the Goliaths in my life. I'm trying to, tired of trying to do it by myself. And so maybe that's you. You just need to give your life to Jesus right now. You just cry out in your heart right now, in your own words, God hears you. I'd also say there's probably a fair number of you here who know God. You walk with Christ. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for years, maybe for decades. Maybe you followed Jesus since you were a little kid. You can't even remember a time in your life when you didn't love Jesus, but you've lost focus in your life. And you've drifted away from your first love. You've begun to take your eyes off of God just like Saul, and now you are dominated by fear. Your life is characterized by fear of whatever. A million different things in your life instead of what God wants you to be focused on and wants to be characteristics of your life, which is just this courageous boldness and courage. I just want you to know this could be the year. 2019 could be the year, believer, where you finally just recalibrate your life around the gospel, where you just sink the roots of your life deeply into a relationship with God through Jesus. So maybe that's you. Maybe that's the commitment that you need to make right now. You just need to say, God, you know my heart. You know I love you. You know I've followed you for a long time, but I have drifted and I have wandered and I have lost my focus on you, God. And I'm exhausted and I'm weary and I'm tired of losing and I need you to be in my life and help me. So I'm just going to make a commitment that this year is going to be all about focusing my life around you, Jesus. Whatever that means, if that means I got to get up early in the morning or stay up late at night and spend time with you, just like David did, and meditate on you and spend time in your word and dig into prayer. I'm willing to do that because I need you in my life right now. Whatever God is telling you to do, you make that commitment to him right now. Let me pray for us, God. 
God, thanks for not leaving us alone to face the Goliaths of our life, God. Thanks for sending the one in Jesus who would crush our giants, God, the one who would come and allow us to live these incredible lives of freedom and boldness and courage, God, not because we're strong, not because we've got it all together, but because he's strong, because he's overcome, because he's conquered on our behalf, God. So, Father, would you help us just to press into Jesus all the more this year so that we could become the men and the women and the boys and the girls that you've designed us to be. God, we pray it in the name of your Son, our Savior, King Jesus. Amen.